I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, hey, welcome to Page Break. I'm your host, Brian McCullen, coming to you while our new puppy naps here in the mountains of Utah. First off with the usual housekeeping, this is your final podcast reminder that I will be at Brandon Sanderson's Dragonsteel Con in Salt Lake City on November 14th and 15th. Come visit my booth where you can get swag and sign books or just have a chat. For fans of my new Glass Immortals series, I'm launching a Kickstarter on November 8th for my very first novella. The story has already been written and follows a young Montego as he arrives in the Osun capital with dreams of being a professional cudgelist. The Kickstarter includes hardcovers, signed swag, and even character tuckerizations. Early bird specials and the high tiers will all be first come, first serve, so put it in your calendar. Now on with the show. My guest this week is international bestseller Amy Kaufman. An author of science fiction and fantasy for young adults, Amy is known for her Starbound trilogy and Unearthed series, which she co-wrote with Megan Spooner, the Illuminae Files and Aurora Cycle, which she co-wrote with Jay Kristoff, and her Elements trilogy. Amy and I chat about international travel, the joys of a quiet hotel room, and touring as a YA author. She tells me about her mutually constructive relationship with her co-authors and the questions you ask yourself and each other when working with a creative partner. We also talk a little bit about writing from a place of grief, and let me tell you, listening back to this hit a little bit harder since my brother passed away last month. Enjoy my conversation with Amy Kaufman. So, um, we were chatting a little bit about travel, and I actually really wanted to ask you about about your travel because you live in Australia and my one experience being invited to a convention in Australia was I got an invite. It was very lovely, very nice of them. And I was under deadline. So I thought, okay, let me figure out how long I'm going to be gone. And I figured out like the only flight, I think I was living in Cleveland at the time. I can't remember if I just moved to Utah, but uh, the only flight available was it was something like 38 hours yeah and and i just uh, 38 hours each direction and there was like a nine hour layover in singapore and and i just thought you know what and i talked to my agent and my agent said brian i'm forbidding you to go to this you are under <laughs> deadline you cannot be gone for like nine days right now mm. and and i was wondering if that kind of like if it is difficult to kind of because you're kind of way out there. You know, for me, mm. if I get invited to something in the continental US, it's really easy. It's a few hour flight. You know, it's it's a day travel. It's fine. Um, but for you, everything outside of Australia is like me traveling to Europe or further. Yeah. Is that difficult? Yeah. Look, I mean, every <laughs> everything is an undertaking. That is for sure. But one of the things I think about being an Aussie is you get good at it. We have game. So... 
I know, you know, I'm heading to the States in, in November to see my publisher for a couple of weeks. And I, you know, even before I went to book it, I know that, you know, there's, there's a couple of different airlines that you want. And then you want the direct flight, you know, Melbourne to LA or, you know, Sydney to LA. And that's all right. That one is like maybe 13, 14 hours, but it's mostly overnight. So you get on and, you know, if the universe is merciful, you pass out and it's kind of over. Honestly, where it goes horribly wrong, I think, is once you start trying to move around the United States. You know, I just had a friend come to visit me from Cleveland and I was blown away that she couldn't catch a direct flight from Cleveland to LA. Like, to me, those are both big enough cities that I, as as a foreigner, have heard of them. And yet she had to go via a hub in order to do it. Um, I have had a long list of publicists who, you know, chant like a mantra, like no connections, no connections, whenever we're trying to do touring because the connections are where it all goes wrong. But look, it's it's definitely a barrier for a lot of Aussies. But, you know, if you play it right, if you just jump on the flight Melbourne to LA and then, you know, you can connect out of anywhere. I mean, there's also, I think now, a direct Melbourne to Dallas-Fort Worth flight, but that's 20 hours. And Ooh. there's, yeah, there's not enough money on the planet for me to get on a 20-hour flight unless I'm, you know, in one of those fancy first-class things where you get your own your own room and I'm not familiar with that mode of travel. So <laughs> right. I will not be doing that. I had a, um, I went to a convention, I think it was my last convention before um, the pandemic hit. Um, I went to a convention in Poland and I, uh, and I had just kind of started getting, started getting enough invites that I needed to start turning them down. And so I just said, okay, anytime I get invited to something from now on, I'll just, I'll just request that they fly me at least premium economy. Right. Um, not an unreasonable request, yep. uh, but it's, it'll be a barrier for some places right? and that's fine. Cause I have less time. And, uh, and they, they flew me business class to Poland and oh, I, once you've had a taste, oh my, oh my gosh, like mm-hmm. I felt like a little bit of a rock star. It, like I, and I found out they actually did that for all the authors, which was amazing. Yeah. I was really impressed that they did that, but like, still I was like, dang. Yeah. I'm available, Poland, <laughs> but, um. No, I mean, I know what you mean because I'm, you know, when I fly to the States, often it'll then be a tour where, you know, you're pinging around like 14 cities in 14 days. So I'm very strategic about my airlines and I'm queen of the frequent flyer point, which means that I can usually fly business home again, uh, just, you know, with the points upgrade. And there is nothing like at the end of that very, very long flight getting onto business class and and someone nice saying, would you like me to turn your seat into a bed now and get you some pyjamas? And I'm like, yes, I would. <laughs> it would be professionally inappropriate for me to kiss you on the mouth right now, but I'm thinking really hard about it. Right? It's Yeah, yeah, it's lovely. Uh, you know, it's that feeling like I'm... I'm one of those people that when I feel like I can afford it or justify it, I always go for the little comforts when I'm traveling mm-hmm. yep. because traveling's it's stressful enough as it is. Yeah. And, and I, I, I don't know, it, it can be, it can already be a struggle even when you're just gone for a few days. Yeah. You're just kind of, you're thrown off. Uh, your, your inner, inner clock is gone and you feel kind of crappy all the time. Yeah, yeah. A friend of mine said to me once, there's nothing to remind you that you are just a thinking animal like travel because, you know, your brain can justify whatever you want, but your body is like, I don't know what's happening. The sun is coming up at a different time. I got all dehydrated and I don't sleep properly and everything is now terrible. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, and, and nobody tells you, right? Like getting dehydrated, just drink tons of water constantly. Yeah, 
Yeah. And 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 you wind up spending eight dollars on bottled water at the airport, you know, at every stop. Pay the price and whatever it whatever it takes. Oh, and you, and you just like you get used to it, but you never like it, right? No, no, you never do. Look, I'm interested to see how I come back to it because yeah, last time I was doing this regularly was 2018 because 2019 I had a baby, so I took the year off touring. And then, of course, 2020 and 2021, I didn't do it at all. And so it's been a while. And as I get ready to do it again, I've been sort of rediscovering all my old tricks because, I mean, I used to spend up to three months a year on the road. I was constantly touring because I would have, you know, two and maybe three books out a year. And then, you know, I'd be traveling here in Australia as well. And, you know, I had game. I, I was that person who would tour for two weeks with just carry on and yet like Mary Poppins, anything you asked for, I could produce out of that bag. And now I'm looking at my packing list being like, how does this go again? So we'll see if I snap back. I'll, I'll report in. Right? Yeah. yeah. You never know. Like we, um, we broke our two and a half year travel fast with a trip to Paris. Ooh, and that's the way to do it. And it was it was absolutely lovely, except for getting COVID halfway through. Oh boy, that is not the way to do it. <laughs> it was not the way to do it. No. Um, we we did the we did the fun parts right, and it mm-hmm. it turned out fine. It was stressful and horrible and very expensive. Sure, but we got home and everything was fine. But man, I I definitely was like what the the weeks leading up to leaving, I was freaking out because I I just you know there was what 14 months where I hadn't left my house and then a following 10 months where I had only kind of been going out and not really doing social things yeah and and then suddenly I'm getting on a plane to Paris and you know your heart just kind of palpitates in a way you can't explain to another human being no it's yeah it's going to be very strange getting back on the road but you know I've done some festivals here in Australia and they've been nice I mean I think also just you know having a small child in the house now the uh the prospect of a very quiet hotel room with crisp clean sheets and total silence is um it's enough to get you moving it's enough to motivate you you know okay I'm glad you said that because I I talked to a lot of people you know both writers and people who just travel for their regular job um and they talk about how difficult it is to like, you know, be on the road and to, you know, going and being alone in a hotel room. I love being alone in a hotel room. Oh, like, yeah, love it. It's one of my favorite things in the world. That first yeah. moment when you swipe your key card and you open the mm-hmm. door, it's mm-hmm. silent and air conditioned and yeah. there's nothing to bother you. No. And like no one can get to you and no one can come in unless you, you have to invite them in. It's your space, completely responsibility free. No, there's no housework in there you're meant to be doing. There's no chores waiting. Nothing's looking at you waiting on your time. It's just your space. Oh, it's so nice. And if you want to scroll your phone for two hours and then kind of go, oh, I should go to the bar and find some dinner, that's fine. Right. Oh, it's like the lifting of all everyday responsibilities. And I am here for it. I love it. Doesn't even have to be that good a hotel, honestly. Now, uh, so different genres, different kind of areas of publishing, you kind of see how how touring is important or not. And like with epic fantasy authors, you kind of have like the very top rung of epic fantasy authors that tour a lot. You know, people like Brandon Sanderson, um, you, you guys like Brent Weeks, uh, Peter Brett, you know, people like that. Um, but you don't 
in terms of kind of the 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 normal epic fantasy author there's not a lot of touring mm-hmm. but i've noticed with my friends that write ya and middle grade there does seem to be a lot more emphasis on get you on the road get you meeting people shaking hands signing books D- does that feel like a very important part of your job uh Look, I mean, it is and it isn't in that I would say I think there are certainly a lot more people visibly doing it, but there are still, you know, an overwhelming majority who are not. And, you know, certainly I wouldn't want any authors who are listening to, you know, to think, oh, well, you know, it's all over if I'm not. But I think you know, because I have had books that I have toured for and books that I have not, I think it's quite different when you contrast YA and middle grade because middle grade, uh, there are laws in the US, I actually don't know how to say it. Is it COPA or COPPA? It's C-O-P-P-A. And it prohibits direct advertising to under 13s, which means that the way books are getting into the hands of middle grade readers are quite different. You know, your your publisher is pitching to, um, you know, librarians and booksellers and, and teachers and so on. And middle grade authors will often either tour a lot or in many cases make a great living off just permanently sort of visiting schools because you know if you if you can get out there and and meet these kids and they're in third grade and they fall in love with the series they may well stick with that series for many years to come you know we've all seen that happen we've all done that as kids we've all had the the multi-book series in YA uh, it's not I don't think vital in the same way and I think you see a mix of YA authors who are toured by their publishers, which is a very small minority. And then a lot of YA authors will actually DIY the tour a bit themselves. Uh, they will, you know, and, and this is how my first tour for These Broken Stars happened is we said to our publisher, well, if we get ourselves around and if we couch surf with our friends, uh, will you pitch the bookstores for us? And and they did. I mean, this was 2013, so I, I couldn't say what's happening these days. But I do. I know that a lot of people will do a little bit of a DIY tour where, you know, if they're in New York, well, Philadelphia and Boston and DC are all accessible by train. So they might do that. Or, you know, they might go somewhere where they have family and, you know, pick up a few local authors to join them for an event. And it's, I think because the YA authors are so engaged with their readers, you know, the, the ability to sort of communicate about that event on social media and in newsletters and get a turnout is is there. Whereas, you know, if you were a middle grade author, you probably don't have a lot of 10-year-olds subscribing to a newsletter. It's just not the nature of how 10-year-olds operate. Yeah. So, yeah, the, I, these days, I'm incredibly fortunate. So I will tour when new books come out now. And I think we're all sort of going to be waiting to see how touring is these days you know how how does it bounce back because we all went virtual and virtual had some great advantages in that it offered you know accessibility to people who couldn't get to a bookstore for any number of reasons from health to geography to caring responsibilities to you know work to whatever but it did also you know it lacks that ability to buy a book and go up and say hi to the author in person and get them to sign it. So I think we'll see a hybrid going forward. That's what I'd like to do going forward. I've definitely noticed over the last, I'd say, eight to 12 months. I mean, I'm sure that started earlier in the pandemic and Mm -hmm. I wasn't paying attention, but I've definitely noticed a lot more of the kind of everybody trying to do the digital events. You know, let's get a friend or two that are authors. We'll do, you know, we'll interview each other for this live event. We'll try to get people to to RSVP and make it a thing that is on a certain time, you know, certain day. Um, And that does definitely seems to be like a a new kind of uh, online normal, right? Yeah, yeah. And the thing is, I like it. And, And like I say, it's super accessible. But I think that, you know, we've all... 
if you can go in person, it's lovely too. But I think we're also now going to have to combat going forward. You know, everyone from authors to booksellers to audience members are all going to have their own risk assessments that they have to make based on, you know, their own individual risk factors. And so I think it's going to be a bit of an experiment for the next little while as publishers and authors put on a bunch of different kind of touring options and see what do people come to what do people not come to you know is it is it about venue is it about getting the event in good weather and outside or you know are there certain areas where that's more or less of a concern and also you know you don't want to put an author in a position where they feel like they have to do something they don't feel safe doing so you know does it does it work fine if the author stays masked and then signs individually for audience members or some authors they'll do an event on stage but they'll pre-sign all of the books so that they're not then, you know, I think back now to like, like 2015 when we were touring for Illuminae and I mean, you know, you're like, remember we all used to joke about con crud that you would go to a convention and then everyone would come home with some kind of super plague. And I, I was just about to mention that. Yeah. You know, and, and, and we all, but it didn't occur to any of us that you would sort of, you know, take particular precautions to right. not catch it, like wearing a mask or, you know. Yeah. You'd, you'd have your hand sanitizer and yep. you would, you would expect to take four or five days to recover after mm-hmm. your your trip yeah and that was kind of it you just kind of expected yeah i'll probably come back with a light cold because i'll be around so many people yeah look i mean i I was yeah our 2015 tour i remember we we had our hand sanitizer with us because we always did and i have this vivid memory of like putting it on the signing table and saying to audience members that my co-author jay had quite a bad cold uh which he you know picked up earlier in the tour and i was like so you guys should hand sanitize after you see us because you know he's got the plague and like i look back now and i'm like oh my god we probably spread that all over the states but you know that's just how we all operated, right? Because I mean, when it's when it's a cold, everybody kind of accepts yeah. that they're going to get colds from their friends, their kids, their coworkers, mm-hmm. and then. But when suddenly the risk of the cold goes from oh, this is going to make me feel cruddy for a few days to oh, this might put me in the hospital. Yeah, no, that everything changes. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, the the risk assessment. Like I've got, I've got. Um, my first big local convention is Salt Lake Fan X and it's a, it's going to be in three weeks now. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I'm, I'm trying to like decide what, what I'm planning on doing. I'm like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to be sharing a booth with a bunch of authors. I live in a really conservative area. So nobody's going to be wearing masks. I'll, mm-hmm. I'll feel like a moron wearing a mask, but I also will feel like a moron if I don't wear a mask. Yeah. Uh, what am I going to do? Do I take it off in the green room? Do I take it off when I'm at the front of panels? Like I, I don't know. Yeah, look, I mean that—that's the social bit that's really difficult, isn't it? You know, my my husband was off to something just the other day, and I said to him, "Honey, I know you know you, at this particular thing he was going to. I said, I know you might be the only one in a mask, but I really need you to be strong and wear it because you know we're about to go away on holiday for a week, and you know if we lose that holiday because we got to quarantine him in a room, well, we'll all have some feelings about that. But you know, it's it was kind of that we were acknowledging to each other that that moment of like ah, you know." if I were to wear a mask and other people aren't and you feel like a weird social pressure. And yeah, I I think surfacing that and talking about it is helpful because then whenever you do, most people who aren't wearing masks say, oh no, you go for it. If you have a reason you need to, you go for it. So I try to remind myself of that. Right. And it's hard to, it's one of those weird social things of like, you always feel like everyone's looking at you when you're doing something different, even though the fact is most people don't even notice that you exist. They don't care. (laughs) No, no. And so 
I don't know. If you want to wear masks, then wear masks. I mean, like it's it's been a common thing in Asian countries for a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to wear masks commonly when you're out and about. Um, and you know, it's a health thing. Why can't that just be kind of normal to say, okay, if I'm comfortable in this location, then fine. And if I'm uncomfortable here, then also fine. Yeah, you know. Look, I mean, I I moved to full time writing in January 2014, and before that. I always thought I was, I, I just had a very delicate constitution because I was constantly catching things. I was like the canary in the coal mine. And, you know, I thought it was me. And then when I went to full-time writing, I started getting like a cold every two years and I realized, oh no, it was the commute. It was the absolutely packed train on like the public transport to and from work five days a week was what was constantly infecting me with stuff. And I don't know, this is going to sound wild, but it turns out when you take steps to not be exposed to things, you don't catch them. And, and it's true. And it's yeah. and, and it's frustrating, though, because you want to go back to being slightly ignorant. And Of course you do. Absolutely. You do. Oh, if we could wish it away. If we could uh, wish it away, we would in a moment. Oh, my, my gosh. God. Yeah. Right. Like, I, I, I definitely find myself doing kind of the calculus in my head of, okay, I know the grocery store is always packed all the time. I'm always going to wear a mask in the grocery store. I know that during the middle of the weekday, the hardware store, there's nobody in the hardware store. Right. I don't mind going into the hardware store without a mask on. And uh, so I'm kind of constantly doing that sort of like little yeah. like, okay, I'm going to always have a mask in my car. Yeah. You know, I'll just make a decision on the fly. And but like, you know, like you were talking about prepping for a trip. You know, my my wife was going to London for a week with her sister, and I just said, okay, for the week and a half leading up to you leaving, I am not going anywhere. Right. I'm like, I've been wanting to get my hair cut for a while, but you know what? Screw that. I'll just wait until you're gone, and yep. then, you know, so that I don't risk ruining your trip. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm, oh, my goodness. And then you stuck at home with her staring at you thinking, I could have been in London right now instead of making <laughs> you soup. Mm. Exactly. Ah, <laughs> oh, Yes. But you know what? We are doing the travel. We're finding ways. And I'm certainly really looking forward to getting back to touring next year. I'll find ways to make it work. We'll all find ways to make it work. Now, uh, do you do you normally tour with your co-writers? Yeah. So the book that I have coming out next year is actually my first ever solo YA. So it'll be uh, my first time on the road by myself, which will be weird. Usually I have been touring either with Megan Spooner or with Jay Kristoff on our co-authored stuff. And I've always had a buddy. So yeah, it's going to be an interesting experience by myself. That, that's really funny because like, I, I'm I'm super interested and you may have come across this if you'd listened to a couple of episodes of this podcast, but I am super interested in the co-writing experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I, I feel like it's something that's like the, the idea of co of co-production of artistic things mm-hmm. sounds very cool to me but also very scary to me <laughs> yeah. how do you how do you kind of is it something that comes naturally to you do you do you just do you just kind of do it and it's not there's no ego and there's no there's no nitpicking and things like that or is it something that you have to navigate yeah i sometimes i sometimes wonder if i'm the best person to talk about this because it comes weirdly naturally to me, uh, I think it is to some degree a personality trait. And I mean, when you look right right back at what I have kind of done with my life, uh, you know, be, before I was a full-time writer, I was a mediator. I worked in conflict resolution and my entire job, I worked in very high value, very complex and usually very fraught 
disputes. My job was to walk into a room with people who wanted to take each other's eyes out and a few hours later, ideally, have everyone shake hands and walk out and one of them remind the other to get the discount on their parking. So, you know, the greatest skill set that you kind of need for that is the ability to put yourself in somebody else's shoes and to listen without judgment and to assess things on their merits rather than, you know, on whether they came from you or from someone else. So, you know, I I both went into that because it was what called to me and also it was a training ground, it turned out, for for co-authoring. And, um, you know, my co-authors and I often say that picking a co-author is like getting married, that if you pick the right person, then you're going to have a good time. And even though you will, of course, you know, always sort of have moments when you both have a different idea about what the best path through the woods is, you you listen to the other person because you picked them to go on the journey with and, you know, you were interested in what they had to say and how they had to say it and, you know, you're not there to drown them out. Whereas if you've picked the wrong person for your marriage or your co-authoring, it's just going to be, you know, a hot-butted fiasco from minute one and you'll know about it. So, you know, I... I write with, as I write with with three co-authors, I also write with Ryan Grouted in my middle grade. And the people that I've written with, we picked each other because we liked the way the other one wrote and we liked the other one's voice. We, you know, wanted to hear what they had to say. We, we liked the way they wove a story. And so if you go into that and you then just want to drown the other person out, well, what's the point in having them there? It's not like they're just sort of going to adopt your voice and make it easier by just you know, now there's two of you doing what you would do. It's going to be a constant arm wrestle that I think would be very unpleasant. So I've, um, I think after How on Earth Do You co-author, the second most common question I get is, have you ever had a fight? And the answer is I have never once had a fight with any of my, my co-authors. But, you know, sometimes we have long discussions. It's just that yeah. you can't call it a fight because no one's actually trying to win. We're both genuinely trying to say, okay, so I think this and this, you think that, help me understand that, explain it to me. And almost always these conversations will end when one of us goes, oh, no, okay, I got it, never mind. And it's the sudden, you know, the sudden flip that you have if you are having a fight with someone of I have realised that I am wrong but now it's going to be another half hour before I find an off-ramp. Yeah. Because we're genuinely not fighting, we're genuinely saying help me get it and I'll help you get mine and one of them will be better and sometimes it'll be mine and sometimes it'll be yours and more often than not it'll be neither, it'll be the thing that we get. The, the middle ground that we find between them is actually the good thing. It's so laid back. I, I really like that. <laughs> it is a very laid back experience. Like I think Jay and I often joke that, you know, we started messing around with the story together only a few months after we met and we were just doing it for fun. Yeah. I was like, thank God we turned out to like each other because we ended up, <laughs> you know, spending literally months of our lives on tour together <laughs> seeing each other at our best and our worst. But I think, you know, I... I love it because I think if you do it in a way where you're really attending to each other, you end up with something that is better than what either of you could produce on your own. You know, like the the very classic example we always sort of, you know, go to is, I don't know, say I think, say you and I are writing something together and I say, well, I think we should have a fight scene next. And you say, well, I think, no, we need to have a conversation next. We could just pick one. And I'm sure either one of them would be fine because we're both fine writers and they're both good ideas. But if we stop, and this is the mediation bit where you go below the position to find out what's driving the position, and we say, okay, let's talk about why we think those are good ideas. And I say, well, I think we need a fight scene because I'm looking at the pacing here, here, and here, and I feel like we really need something to kick up the pacing. And I also think we need to bear in mind, you know, the promises we made to the reader about the type of book that this was. And I think that in the type of book we've promised this is, you know, this this kind of situation 
conversation will be dealt with via, you know, some kind of physical conflict. You know, tell me more about why you want the conversation. And you say, well, I want the conversation because, you know, two scenes ago he said he loved her and we they haven't had any chance to process that. And I'm not saying they need to get all the way to the end of the processing, but we need a chance either for her to say she loves him back or for her to not say she loves him back or for them to do something because otherwise in, we both know that in the scene after this, they're going to end up, I don't know, dangled over a cliff. And every decision that they make is going to be in the context of him having said that. And, you know, we need to sort of give her, you know, her decisions won't make any sense if we don't know what she she makes of it. And the thing is, okay, the initial positions were like fight scene and conversation, but actually what's driving both of them makes a lot of sense. You know, we've got to deal with pacing. We've got to deal with the promise to the reader. We've got to deal with, you know, the character interpersonal dynamics. So now we know what we're actually solving for. So now we can come up with something that is going to do all of those things. You know, it might be that, okay, we are you know, got to find a way for them to do one of those comedic having a conversation while fighting, you know, you know, with both kind of bopping their heads up to shoot their lasers off and then coming back down and being like, I just find it really hard to talk about my feelings. Hop up, you know, send off another burst and, you know, down again, and, you know, doesn't mean I don't want to grow. And, you know, you, there are lots of ways that you could solve that problem. But when you have the, okay, tell me about why you're thinking that conversation, you end up, I think, able to solve for what's actually going on. And that's where you get the really good, rich stuff. And you get mm-hmm. the stuff that's, oh, this actually is two brains being better than one because we're really using two brains. Hey, Page Break listeners. Brian here, rudely interrupting myself for a bit of a plug. Making a podcast isn't free, and I'm hoping that you enjoy it enough to pitch in a pittance. To do so, head on over to patreon.com slash pagebreak, where you can toss as little as $3 a month into the tip jar, $5 a month to get the podcast ad-free and early, and $10 a month to hear your name in the credits and feel a smug sense of superiority. You can also buy my books from your favorite retailer, or direct from my website. Thanks to everyone who contributes. Now back to me. I was I was talking to Ty Frank recently about him and Daniel Abraham and yeah and Daniel yeah and and he had pretty much the same answer which was we're putting the best of two different writers together to create something awesome yes and I I really love that attitude that's just I, I feel like anytime that that the idea of writing something with someone else comes into my head I immediately overthink it in ten different ways. And, and, and I think that the way that obviously what you do and what Ty does are both very successful co-writings and, and I, and it's just, it makes so much more sense than all the chaos that goes on in my brain when I think about that. (laughs) Right. Right. Well, and I mean, look, I haven't, I haven't had the pleasure of meeting Daniel, but I have met Ty. And one thing that I certainly, you know, got from our conversations was that he likes Daniel. You know, he spoke about him not just as someone that, you know, he not not just as a co-worker, but someone who he actually wants to listen to and, you know, respects and, and enjoys. And I think that if you can find that, that makes a big that makes a big difference. I talked about um when I'm when I'm not waxing lyrical about masks and how to do this, um, one of my two podcasts, Amy Kaufman on writing, is, you know, ten minute snippets of writing advice. And I did a three parter on um on how to co-author and the first episode is all about prep. It's all about figuring out what assumptions do each of you have 
that you haven't told the other one about how this is going to work. And the thing is, I never did any of this prep because I just stumbled into it. But looking back, I can now see all the potholes that we just happened to avoid. You know, all the stuff like, you know, you and I are going to write a book together, Brian. Are we going to, I should say to the audience, we're not, I keep saying that by way of example. Everyone's going to be waiting for our, um, <laughs> yeah, I once, I once went. It's all right. I'll, I'll, I'll pitch it to you after we're done. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, sure. So this is coming from, I once was at a bar with Joe Abercrombie and Trudy Canavan and Jay Christoph, and we were brainstorming the, you know, jokingly, the uh, four authored epic fantasy series we were going to write. And it was going to have, you know, a man in a hood on the first cover and a sword on the second cover and a bloody fist on the third cover. And it was going to be called Ashes of the Shadow King of the Blood's God's Revenge or something. We were, we were playing, you know, bingo with all of the things we could think of. Um, <laughs> And back when Twitter was a happier, funnier place, your girl here thought this, this would be hilarious to live tweet this conversation and woke up the next morning to a whole bunch of people being like, wait, are you though? Because we'll read that. And me being like, oh no, I've accidentally just started a rumour that I'm writing a four-authored epic fantasy series um, about a man who, uh, you know, rises from the ashes of his ruined city as an orphan and does whatever other things we can think of that fit on the bingo card. Um, but Anyway, so all that by way of saying, you know, let's start another rumour. It'll be hilarious. Uh, but, you know, if you and I are starting together, you know, we need to talk about, you know, do I think that we're doing this in a month for NaNoWriMo and you think that we're going to spend two years doing this? You know, do I think that this is, you know, what tone do I think it's going to have? What tone do you think it's going to have? Do we have two different agents? Does one of us have an agent and one doesn't? If one of us wants to give up, does the other one get the manuscript or is the manuscript dead now? If one of us wants to give up, can one the other one maybe take a character from it and do something else? You know, all this stuff that you need to work out about, you know, that you're going to navigate. And the thing is, as I say, I did none of it and got lucky, but I think I got lucky. <laughs> and I think I chose my writing partners incredibly carefully. Yeah. The way that you put it in terms of like, it, it is starting a relationship and it's a starting a relationship that's more intimate than friendship. Mm. Uh, and yeah. I, I think maybe that's where the chaos in my head when I think about co-authoring comes from is because, because there's part of me that realizes that that is, that is a very, it is a very intimate thing to share a creative world with somebody else. And, and I, I really like what you were saying though, about putting up, like uh, talking about expectations and it is, it's like going into like having a new significant other, right? I mean, mm. they literally are a significant other in your life. They're co-authoring something with you. Yeah. Yeah. They absolutely are. Yeah. I mean, Lord, the number of people who think that Jay Kristoff and I are married and we are, we are most assuredly married, but to other people uh, and very happy about it. Uh, I think one time we were going through security at about three o'clock in the morning to catch a flight to somewhere. And the guy kept saying something to Jay about his wife. And Jay is just staring at him like, my wife's asleep in Australia. I don't understand. It's three o'clock in the morning. I don't understand what's going on. And then suddenly he and I both realize at the same moment that the guy thinks I'm his wife. And like small children afraid of cooties, we both literally went Ugh! out loud and like physically leapt apart. This guy's just, I mean, you shouldn't make sudden movements when you're talking to the TSA. And the two of us flinging ourselves apart didn't go down well. But it was, um, yeah, it's, it is nevertheless, it's a very, it's a strangely intimate relationship because 
you know, I mean, it's like with your critique partners, you know, you write something that's very personal and you send it to them. There's not that layer of separation that's between you and a reader who hasn't met you. When you send something really personal to a critique partner, they they know that's Brian talking. They know that's come from somewhere inside of you and some part of you and some part of your experience. And that means that, you know, you're revealing that to them. And as well as asking them what they think of the writing, you're sort of asking them to be okay with whatever bit of you you've just shared. And co-authoring is like that all the time. Yeah. I mean, there's plenty of stuff that doesn't even reach my agent that that I self-edit mm. before see, she sees any of it. And, and, and yeah. some of that stuff is self-edited because I look at it later and go, yeah, I feel like this reveals too much about me, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. See, I'm, I think I'm one of those rare beasts who I don't know that I have a too much button. I think I'm, I've had a few formative moments early on in my writing where I revealed something deeply personal and saw the impact that it had on readers. And so I've kept going. I think there's, in my very first book, there's a moment I wrote uh, where a character is grieving and I wrote it out of my experience sitting in a hospital waiting room, knowing that they were attempting to resuscitate my dad in the next room. And, you know, the way that time just slowed down and, you know, everything around me changed. And, you know, as it happened that particular day, they did resuscitate him, but I wrote very deeply and personally in in the book about it. And, you know, it's the one chapter that was never edited. I just wrote it down and sent it off and said to Meg, my co-author, if anything needs to happen with that, you'll have to do it. And she went, nope, I moved a comma, fixed a typo, we're done. And my editor was like, I don't know, I cried. I couldn't find anything in there that I was too busy crying. But I've gone on to do that quite a lot of times. And I think perhaps it's, for me, it's part of writing young adult work in particular is I think that part of the mandate is you know, you're in a conversation with young people about what it is to be a person and how to be a person. And, you know, your teen years are a moment when you're sort of defining yourself in a lot of ways. I think when we were writing the Illuminae files, it is not a spoiler to say a character loses a parent in that book, because in that book, famously, like 100,000 people die and you meet most of them first. But um, a character loses a parent in, and then that character appears in book three. And we wrote book three, And then between the writing and the editing, my own father died. And, you know, he had been ill for some time, but we certainly hadn't expected that that was when it was going to happen. And I remember coming back to that book to edit it and looking at it and thinking, oh, no, oh, no, no, no. She can't just be running around doing action sequences. Like the foundations of her world have just been ripped away and we need, she can do the action sequences, but we got to deal with the rest of it as well. And I was talking to Jay about that and I, I was telling him about, you know, I mean, anyone who's lost a family member knows, you know, the you wake up in the morning and for like, 2.5 seconds, everything's fine. And then you remember and like the bricks land on your chest or you're walking down the street and, you know, humans, we have this this very sophisticated silhouette recognition system that's designed for picking out a saber tooth and starting to run away very fast. And you see a silhouette and you think, oh, hi, you know, I've just run into. And then you think, oh, no, it's not. And then you think, and and it won't ever be again. And, you know, it hits you all over again. And I was talking to Jay about those moments and he said, look, it's your stuff and, you know, you should choose what you do with it. But I think you should consider if you can putting some of it in because he found it very affecting when he was hearing about it. Um, and, you know, and he said, I think this might be one of those those moments when other people realize they're not by themselves when they hear it. So I, I did. I put it all in. And I hear all the time from readers who, you know, come up or write and say, I know you lost someone because I did and you described how it felt. And I think, you know, I always say when I'm talking to groups of teenagers that, you know, I'll say to them, every single person in this room, including 
your parents if they're present, including your teachers if they're present, everyone here has experienced the following moments. Uh, the moment when you walk up to a group and you're pretty sure they were talking about you just before you arrived. The moment when you force yourself to go to something and as you walk in the door, you think, yeah, no, I was right the first time. This was a really terrible decision and I shouldn't have done it. You know, the moment when you are awake at three o'clock in the morning rehearsing that conversation you had for the 65th time in the vain hope that this time you won't have said that unbelievably stupid thing that you said. And I think by saying to them, all the grown-ups in this room, by the way, have all had those moments. And by putting those moments in books, whether it's grief or whether it's, you know, public humiliation or whether it's just like uncertainty or shyness or whatever, I think, you know, particularly for a teen audience, it's a way of saying to them, hey, it's not just you. I can't necessarily fix it, but I want you to know it's not your special fault. It's not some flaw in you. This is this is all of us. And I think that that feeling of not being alone, you know, it's what we all get from books, but I think it's a particular type of not being aloneness that you can communicate when you're writing YA, that you should be communicating. Yeah, very much so. That's 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 interesting, especially with kind of the YA angle, because I, mm. you know, I I, I I write for adults. I kind of, I mean, not on purpose. It's just kind of what I wrote right. and then sold, and now it's my career. Yeah. I, I, there, there's kind of an aspect to to writing for adults that I think might be a little bit emotionally less complicated. Um, and, and I'm not sure, I'm not even sure if I'm right while I'm saying this, but I, I sometimes think that when you're writing for adults, you can kind of get away with making a bunch of assumptions, giving them a story and assuming, okay, they're probably going to enjoy this. Whereas there's, when you're writing something, I got to imagine for people that are younger, there is so much more kind of emotional complexity in terms of um, maybe even emotional volatility. When when you're, I mean, when I was a teenager, oh my lord, it was awful. Like the the, the <laughs> my my emotions were everywhere all the time, and because I was, you know, like because I was who I am, you know, I'm mean, you're expected to just clamp it down and shut up, you know, do your thing. And trying to kind of create for an audience that probably is broiling under the surface all the time because of all the hormones and everything going on. Oh, gosh, that's that's got to be a different sort of thing. Well, I mean, I think it's it's something to be undertaken with enormous respect because, you know, it's a tough time of life for so many reasons. As, as you say, like, you know, you're confused about a bunch of things. You're also just an adult with less life experience. You're a young adult. So that means there's a bunch of stuff you're trying to work out. You're trying to work out where you stand on things. You know, you're trying to work out how to respond to things. You know, the older you get, the more you've got these sort of practiced social responses that, you know, they may or may not be the ones that you want to offer. But, you know, we all kind of just, we we know the dance steps. You learn more and more dance steps the older you get. And when you're a teenager, you're still figuring a bunch of those dance steps out. And so I think, you know, there's, there are no steps that, that a YA audience is sort of taking automatically like an adult audience is. They're very authentic. They're, they're very demanding. We're also dealing now with teenagers who, you know, it's different from when you and I were teenagers. They're hyper-connected. They're much more activist. They're much more informed. They're, you know, I truly believe if we can all just not mess things up for like the next 15 years, today's teenagers will actually be the ones to save us. So, you know, if for no other reason than that, I think they're the ones that I want to be having a conversation with. But they're, you can't write books to teach, you sh or at least I think you shouldn't write books to teach. But I think you can write books 
to offer your perspective and your experience and you can write books to ask questions that prompt the readers to sort of come up with their own replies and to come up, you know, and in coming up with those replies to sort of define their own positions on things. So, you know, I don't write books to offer the answers because they're usually books about things I don't have an answer to. I write books that ask questions and sort of invite the reader to figure it out alongside me. I don't know about you. Often I look back and I only realize later, oh, that's what I was trying to figure out. Oh, interesting. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I I, I find that if someone is writing from the perspective that they have answers, they don't. Mm. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> exactly. That's the first warning sign, isn't it? It's it's a massive warning sign, right? It's, yeah. you know, I... I feel like going into every conversation, every piece of every chapter that I write, going into everything with the idea that I don't think I'm right about anything. Maybe I have some strong opinions. Mm. Maybe I maybe I ha- have learned a lot in certain subjects, but even even the things that I am most certain about, I feel like I'm still not 100% certain about. And I feel like uh, I feel like as I get older, I try to adopt that more and more. And I feel like it makes me a happier person mm. and makes me able to connect with other yeah. human beings easier. Yeah. I mean, I feel like all, all, certainly all the, not just the most accomplished writers I know, but kind of the most accomplished humans, as in the people who I consider to be best at humaning, uh, the ones who, when they say, oh, I don't know, it's not with an air of, oh, no, I don't know. It's an, with an air of, oh, how interesting, I don't know. And yeah, I'm very wary of people who are incredibly, you know, confident about everything they're doing. You know, I think it's quite possible to say, you know what, I'm confident in my craft. I've been doing this for a long time. You know, I've, I've put an enormous amount of effort into it and I believe that, that my craft serves me well. doesn't mean that you have to think you know how to do it all or that you know what you're doing all of the time. And I think, yeah. Who you are and what you create is so much more interesting when you've got questions. Well, and having questions, honestly, it tends to be a little bit more efficient, to be honest, just to be a person, you know, like, (laughs) and it's as simple as having the confidence to walk into a store, Mm -hmm. go straight up to a person wearing a, 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 you know, vest, the same color and say, I don't know where this shit is. Please tell me. And like it, it, but it's applying that to your whole life makes so much easier. Everything's so mm. much easier. Yeah, yeah, doesn't it? I feel very, very lucky to have been raised by a mother who is, look, probably the most intelligent person I will ever meet in my life. Phenomenally accomplished woman. Uh, I still don't understand what my mother does for a living now, and she's she's just retiring. Uh, it's to do with e-commerce. I think she invented most of it. I really don't know. And and that's not an exaggeration. I think she might have. But um, she always said to me growing up, you know, oh, you know, the most interesting people in my life say I don't know. And so from very early on, I had that frame of, oh, it just makes you interesting when you say I don't know. And I tell you what, for sure, I'm the person who comes in and marches straight up to the person in the vest and says, hello, I don't know where to find anything in your store. So it does also just make my life much more efficient. Yeah, yeah, it's... Uh... No, it's a it's a kind of a good place to go from. And and when you're when you're writing, you you know, you often everything kind of starts with asking questions, right? Mm-hmm. You know, what's interesting to me? You know, well, what magic would be cool in a world that I have been daydreaming about? You know, yeah. there you're asking these questions to produce produce something for yourself, for your job, but also for other people to enjoy. And if you don't if you don't slow down and ask those questions, you know, ask continuously asking what is interesting about the thing I'm working on, 
what is keeping people engaged? What's keeping me engaged? I mean, I think that's super important. Yeah, that's that is actually something that that what has been what is keeping me engaged is something I've been thinking about a lot lately because with this um this book I've got coming out next year it's called The Isles of the Gods it's a fantasy novel which is a diversion for me because most of my published stuff is sci-fi uh but you know I grew up on fantasy as well as sci-fi and I sat down and I thought to myself okay you know this is going to be my 19th novel but it's going to be my first solo YA I've written solo in middle grade before and I thought, so I think it should just be, it should be the book that I want to read more than any other. And so I did a, I, you know, often I will write for a particular audience. You know, I don't, I think if you try to write generally, it can get quite bland. But if I think, oh, I'm going to make my friend Michelle laugh with this chapter, then the more specific, you know, the more general, I think that's, you know, that's not new wisdom. But in this case, my specific was me. My specific was, I'm going to write the book that specifically I would find interesting. And so it's a book that has a has a very particular point of view. It knows exactly what it wants to be about and what it doesn't want to be about. It knows exactly what it, what it is interested in asking and what it is not interested in asking because I had a very personal reference point for it. So it's, and I have found it's, it's going, it's, been out to critique partners and my editor and it's going to early readers now and I'm finding that you know as always that rule holds out that the more specific you are it turns out the more universal something is because no one's reading it and going this is this is a weird thing to wonder about everyone's reading it and saying oh what a great adventure I love it so well and here we are and and it's and it's interesting to explore those kind of things because you know it was like a point we kind of touched on earlier is that idea of of being trapped in your own head, especially as writers, because we tend to work, you know, like mostly alone at our desks doing a thing, you know, we're not generally going into offices and, you know, like talking over the water cooler with people, you're always in your own head. And, and it's so easy to get stuck on, on little details that you think other people will either not like or freak out about or, or something that 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 drags you down and slows you down mm-hmm. and and that can get so frustrating when in fact yeah. you know get it on the page and see if it works for the story ah oh, look i mean also just no one cares whatever it is you're obsessing about no one a, a friend asked me just yesterday um because so i grew up sailing and the isles of the gods is a, a high seas book and she uh has put her characters on a large boat for a sequel to her book and has then of course realized she does not have any experience with large boats and so she came back and said can you sort of ballpark it for me you know how like how far can the boat go in a day and so on and I was like well I mean dude this depends on you know is it going with the wind or against the wind or with the currents or you know what's the size of the boat how many sails and so on but let me tell you something I worked all of this out for the Isles of the Gods I drew the map at the start and I worked out every day of travel and made sure it all worked and then when we got, I'm not even sure I should say this in public, but here we are. Uh, when we got close to drawing the map, I have a, an, a map artist, Virginia Allen, who I absolutely have loved working with on past books. So I asked for her again. And when I was pulling my notes together to send to Virginia, I realized, oh, hang on a minute. I've put this key destination in the absolute dead center of the map, which means it's going to fall into the gutter of the book. It's going to be in the fold between the two pages, which means you actually won't be able to see this key destination. Oh. So I was like, all right, cool, cool. So I, so I, I sent it all off as was, but, but a, with a note to Virginia saying, just shuffle it to the right, however far it needs to go in order to be visible, because there's no point having a book called the Isles of the Gods if on the map, the Isles of the Gods 
are invisible inside the fold. Like of all the things that we can't afford to have fall into the gutter, I'm going to go with that yeah. as number one. And so, you know, she created this gorgeous map and shoveled it across. And when it came back, I looked at it and I thought, okay, that's kind of going to mess up, you know, all of my travel. And so I did a quick flick through all of my travel and to make sure that nothing was really ridiculous. And then I changed all of my specific times to a few days, a day or two, a few hours. And I got on with it because no one was ever, ever going to look at that stuff anyway. <laughs> this is what I said to my friend. No one cares. I, I find myself doing that. And it's one of those things where I know better. I've, I've done this. Right. I mean, I know better. Right. I, I've done this long enough. I Doesn't know better. Help. But like, man, I do that kind of thing all the time where I obsess over logistics. Mm-hmm. I obsess over specific numbers and movements and, oh, this place is so far away and all that yeah. stuff. And to be honest, most of that stuff, like as long as you're not pulling like, you know, a late season Game of Thrones where people are teleporting between thousands of miles. Right. Exactly. The the reader doesn't care that much. They're they're in there for the story and the characters. And if you're fudging a bit of timeline here and there without like shoving it in their faces, they're they're not their face. Exactly. Like no one should teleport and should definitely feed the horses sometimes, but <laughs> yeah. you know, like I, I grew up reading Eddings and you think about like the maps that were in the front yeah. of like an old school David Eddings, which were presumably not to scale. And, you know, it had just he would say in the book, it will be two weeks travel by horse to go from here to here. And I'd be like, All right, yeah. if you say so, Fine. checks out. Like, I don't know. Sure. I, you know, I know that there are certain genres where the readers truly are there for the detail because the detail is the point of the story, mm-hmm. but most genres, that's not true. And what I really mean there is certain sub-genres where that's, where the detail is the point. If it's not the point, it's not right. the point. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Once you get into like things like hard science fiction, you know, there's like, there are expectations that you know physics, right? (laughs) Like that. Oh, look, for sure. I mean, Illuminae went to an astrophysicist the first draft and we got back 25 pages of notes, some of which were in all caps. Yeah, she was real mad about a few things that we did. And look, now I am considerably more educated about physics. I'm like, hmm, I'd be mad too. (laughs) 
But you know what? One of my proudest moments was when uh, a friend who's at uh, JPL told me that they, a group of NASA employees read it for their book club and they didn't find a mistake. Like That's my greatest flex that we did get the physics right because we were in an area where it mattered. We were in an area where we knew that some of the people, like, although it's a, you know, definitely a very accessible kind of gateway sci-fi book, we knew some sci-fi readers who read it would really care. So we got that stuff right. But I think, you know, you got to distinguish between when it matters and when it doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, for my new series that, uh, is just, that just came out a couple months ago, started a couple months ago, I've got a glass-based magic system. And so you, you spend quite a lot of time in a glassworks. And even though it's a fantasy glassworks with some changes to it, it still needed to feel like a glassworks. So I ended up tracking down a handful of people who have worked in glassworks and have, you know, uh, one of them had studied actual historical glass blowing, things like that. And, and I, it, it was actually the first time I had ever tracked down professionals to check something for me. And, uh, and honestly, I was incredibly proud of myself because everybody came back and said, <laughs> here are a couple of tiny notes but otherwise you got the vibe down pretty well. And, and I, I, I tell people that when you're writing something like Epic fantasy, you know, like something that is so far outside of our modern experience that Mm. you kind of have to have, like uh, you have to have studied history to really like to, to nitpick at things that you as the author can't spend tons of time nitpicking because you're going to lose the reader because they just, like yes. as you have said they do not care they want the narrative to keep going right and the thing is i mean your book will go through your critique partners it'll go through your editor someone will tell you if it's something that people do care about you know if everyone snags and goes but how did they get there or but didn't his hands burn off when he grabbed that piece of molten you know people will tell you if it matters like you can you can let them be the filter yeah yeah and it's and and I, th- I think that everybody, I think that all authors, all authors are going to struggle with that kind of paranoia of, am I doing something wrong? You know, am I, am I accidentally plagiarizing? You know, that cool line I wrote last night, is that line, did I steal that from somewhere? You know, Is that mine? Yeah. Right. Look, and I mean, I, I, I think that just goes back to what we were, what we were saying earlier in a different context is people who don't doubt are not growing. You can be absolutely confident that if they ha- if they don't doubt, then you know these are people who are I don't know doing the same thing over and over again. Essentially, that you know everybody else, the the doubt is a sign that you're pushing at your edges and getting better. Do you do you try to kind of push at your edges when you're when you're writing? Do you try to kind of push on things that you maybe uh, find uncomfortable or? And I don't mean in a in an icky way or anything like that. I just mean in a yeah. this isn't natural for me to write sort of way. Yeah, yeah, I definitely do. And I think one of the dangers of co-authoring is you if your if your co-author is particularly good at something and you're not particularly good at something, you can get into the habit of handing over the thing that isn't good. But, you know, again, one of the reasons I I know I've had three very healthy co-authoring relationships is we have slowly but surely our skills have started to merge. So, you know, Jay and I would joke very early on that, you know, if it was a fight scene, I'd hand it to him. And if it was a kissing scene, he'd hand it to me. And by the end of it, you know, we were both tackling all of those things, you know, and, you know, with, with Meg, I would often be like, oh, if if it needs a really beautiful lyrical description, I'll hand it to Meg. And she'd say, oh, if it needs a pithy line, I'll hand it to Amy. And, you know, I've just, this morning before I came on, I've been critiquing something that Meg wrote and I literally laughed out loud and woke up the dog. You know, she's brilliant in 
everything that she does. But I think, you know, if things go well, you slowly teach each other. But I definitely, I still have areas that I'm like, "Mm, this is not what I'm good at. And I think that is where having really kind of studied and thought about craft is helpful because, and this is an idea I, I first came across when I used to teach mediation. We talk about the idea of having a toolbox and that when you kind of consciously act access your craft it turns that into a tool that you can put in the toolbox that you can then reach for when you need to so you know i think i mean have you heard of like the conscious competency sort of theory before Mm. i should probably explain it even if because presumably people who are listening haven't um that sounds really familiar but i please explain it i mean i'm sort of look i'm I'm overgeneralizing here, but the the quick version is that there are kind of four stages to knowing how to do a thing. You are unconsciously incompetent, which is you are not good at it and you don't even know you're not good at it. Then you are consciously incompetent, which you have now started trying to do the thing and you have realized you are not good at doing the thing. And this is, you know, Ira Glass calls it the taste gap. It's like the moment when a lot of us try to do something, it comes out really badly and we're like, okay, I guess I'm not going to do this anymore. You know, I I guess I'm never going to be a needlepoint expert and we walk away. Um, And then there is conscious competency, which is I can now do the thing, but as I am doing it, I am focusing on doing it. And then finally, there is unconscious competency, which is I am now so good at doing the thing that I don't have to consciously summon my craft in order to do it. And so, you know, as in, in your kind of career as an author, you you hopefully move up and different things start to shift up into unconscious competency where you can now just do those things without having to think about them. You know, if I say to you, you know, you know, you need to very quickly, you know, give me a setting so that I know where it is. And then these two characters need to have a conversation that sort of gives me an idea of who they are, that one is bossy and one is meek. You don't any longer think to yourself, okay, now how would I do that? I suppose a bossy person would do more interrupting and I suppose a meek person might have more ums and I suppose I should look at the amount of dialogue that each of them have. And You know, you don't do that anymore. You just, you would just write it because you know how to write it because you're a good writer and that's your unconscious competency. But then there are areas where you and I and every writer out there are still consciously competent where we can do it, but we've got to think about it. And I think what's interesting about this is there is a perception that unconscious competency is like the holy grail and that's what we're going for. But actually, people who are good at anything, they switch back and forth between conscious and unconscious competency. So, you know, if you're trying to write that scene about the bossy person and the meek person and it's not working and you can tell it's not working, the skill that you have is the ability to shift back into conscious competency and start summoning like that list of things I just gave you. You know, oh, okay, well, maybe it's about the proportion of dialogue. Maybe it's about the verbs they use. Maybe it's about interrupting. And so kind of for me, studying craft is about taking things that I might already be unconsciously competent about and bringing them into conscious competency because then I can like put a label on them and put them in my toolbox. And so when I'm like, oh, I'm trying to write something that needs a hammer, I can actually go rummaging my toolbox and find a hammer because I've thought about it and labeled it before. Does this make sense? Oh, it makes total sense. Uh, no, I, I I absolutely love that. Uh, the, because I was I was going to ask while you're explaining that because I feel like I do I switch between the two yeah constantly and we should and I and I was I was curious about because I like I when you first started I thought oh gosh I I feel like I got to the unconscious like four or five years ago and then have been like drifting back no <laughs> but like that means you're but it is it I switch back and forth yeah right the, the drifting back is. I mean, I feel like we kind of have found the theme of our whole conversation. The drifting back is coming into the I don't knowness yeah. of it. Is coming back into the you're no longer stressed when 
Like if you look at a scene and it's not working out, you don't freak out. You think, oh, okay, that's not working. And I mean, you don't consciously think it to yourself, but kind of, you know, your mental response is, well, lucky I have lots of tools. And so you slide yourself into conscious competency and you start rummaging through your toolbox looking for, okay, you know, holding things up and being like, is this the one that'll fix it? Mm, Maybe not. Is this the one that'll fix it? Mm, You know, how would Brandon do this? You know, have a look at this, put it down. How would, you know, Sam Shannon do this? And, you know, put it down. And you kind of, you know, look and compare and contrast. And that's, that's conscious competency. So, and, you know, it only strengthens your unconscious competency so that next time it might be something else you slide back on. But I think, yeah, it's the thing we keep going back to, isn't it? How great it is to say, I don't know. Yeah. Oh, and I, and I absolutely love it. I love that. I love that kind of curiosity about the world and, and just willingness to kind of engage with um, a engage with your own, I mean, inag- inadequacies is a hard, harsh, it sounds slightly harsh, but like, but it is true to en- engage with the, the fuzzy parts in your consciousness, right? Right, right. Like call them whatever makes it feel good for you. Call them your own learning areas. Call them, you know, your own conscious competencies. Call them your inadequacies. Call them whatever you like. But they're the interesting bits. Oh, yeah. Like doing the stuff that you already know how to do, you know. I mean, sure. But the bits that I'm working on, that's the stuff that is the most interesting and satisfying to do. Right. Because it's because when you do get it right, oh, my gosh, that feeling. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's that feeling of saying, holy crap, this thing I've been trying and trying to do, I've finally nailed it. Oh, it's such a you you just like that feeling is actually addictive. It is, right. Well, and the thing is, it is if you're comfortable with the I don't know-ness, whereas if you hated the I don't know moment and you weren't open to the curiosity, then I think when you finally get the thing right, it's more of a, oh, thank God that's over, scramble out of it and never look back kind of moment, which, which also unfortunately means you don't learn. Yeah. Because part of it is, you know, when when you and I are riding that high of, oh, it, it all looked terrible, but now I've done it. Part of that experience is looking at it, back at it and going, okay, what did I just do? How How did I get that to work? And, you know, you're labeling the tool and shoving it in the toolbox. Pull it out again next time you need it. Ah, uh, that's so great. I love that. Well, so I've, I've kept you for quite a while, but I like to end every episode by asking each of my guests, left field question, what's the last thing that you ate that blew your mind? mind. Oh, my gosh. That is left field. Uh, I am going to say, so Melbourne, we are a very, very, very hipster town. Uh, we've kind of got shades of, I don't know, like like Portland, Oregon kind of around us. Like uh, an American visitor once said to me that Melbourne is one of the only cities in the world where adding it's in an alleyway is how you make your recommendation of somewhere to eat or drink cooler rather than like it being an apology or a just get past that and, you know, whatever. Uh, but the, the last thing I ate that really blew my mind was in a – dodgy, divey little place uh, that about half an hour from me. Uh, it's an all-vegan restaurant, and I'm a, a pescatarian who really misses meat a lot. Uh, so I ate this. It was like sizzling Mongolian beef made out of saitan, I think. I'm not even sure. And the moment when the waitress brought out this big sizzling plate that just enveloped me in clouds of smell and the whole thing was sizzling and crackling on the on the platter, was maybe the happiest moment of the last ooh, several months for me. I just inhaled it deep into my lungs. It was amazing. oh, that's that's real good. I, I, I'm one of those people that uh, 
I don't, I wouldn't call myself self-hating carnivore, but I, <laughs> I realize the, the, the issues with being someone who loves me. Do see it. Yeah. Um, but I do love me. See, that was, that was me for a long time. And then I acquired a small person who started making animal noises. She'd say, what's that mama? And I'd say chicken. And she went, buck, buck, oh, no. buck, buck, buck. and it was like, a vegetarian friend said to me, everyone's got their moment, you know, the final straw. And like, that was mine. Uh, my child started making sound effects for my food. And I was like, oh, I can't. that's it. And I stopped. There was a comedian, I think it was John Panette. I think he passed away a few years back, but he, uh, he talked about, um, about a friend of his inviting him to their farm to show him the lambs. And he said, no, do not show me your lambs. I want to be able to eat <laughs> lamb chops in the future. Right. No. Yeah. No, just couldn't, can't do it. Want to absolutely grow that stuff in a vat. And oh my goodness, I will be first in line. I miss it a lot. Just I, can't do it. I'm very much on board with the, the, the idea of, okay, I am totally fine meeting you in the middle here. You know, give me an alternative and I will dive in. Like if it, if it tastes and looks and smells similar I will be all on top of that. Yeah. Yeah. We're finally getting there with those. I mean, I think I really admire people who did this 20 years ago because I don't think I could have, but <laughs> these days, you know, I mean, yeah, I've, I've got pretend everything is great. <laughs> that is excellent. Next time you're in Australia, we'll serve you an all pretend meal. Hey, I'll, I'll, I'll give it a go. I'd love it. That was author Amy Kaufman. Thanks again to Amy for coming on to chat. You can find links to Amy's social media down in the show notes. You can find me, as always, at brianmcclellan.com. As a quick reminder, jump onto Kickstarter to support my new Glass Immortals novella. Special thanks to James Sutter for music and Tom Bishop for production. If you'd like to support the podcast, head on over to patreon.com slash pagebreak or buy my books in ebook, paperback, or audio. You can also get signed copies of my books direct from my website, or swag from my Redbubble store. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. If you're listening to this via Patreon, please stick around for bonus chat during the epilogue. Special thanks to Elijah, Ivor Gulickson, James Clark, Jennifer Johnson, Jay Sunnell, Kyle Anderson, Sexton Hardcastle, and Talon for their backing on Patreon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.